Welcome to the Courage to Lead interview series. Um, someone who I've worked with for a long time um, and kind of rate as probably one of the best leaders I've ever worked with ever um, in in her style and, and how she achieves what she achieves in an arena where she has no authority a lot of the time, um, but people just want to work with her. Um, so it's a real skill that not many of us have. Um, and, I, and that's why I've been keen to get this lady on the program. So who I'm talking about, and I hope I haven't embarrassed her too much already, is um, Trina, G Trina Jones. Um, she's currently the CEO of Homeless New, Homelessness New South Wales and been a, in that position for five months. So welcome to the program, Trina. Thank you, Alan. And that's a massive compliment coming from you and leader I very much admire and have always been inspired by. Yeah, so so we've got that out of the way. Well, we've patted each other on the back, but thank you for that kind <laughs> words. So, so I'll just go, I'll just, I, I won't, um, I won't embarrass you or ask you a personal question about how old you are, but um, if anyone looks up Trina on on um, social media, you'll see that she's, see that she's very, very young um, or very young looking. She's a mother of two children um, and a happily married woman. Um, and I'll just go through some, some of the bare facts that I know about her and then we're just going to explore how Trina has, um, has created this leadership uh, style that she has that I, that I wished I'd had the pleasure of working with more people like Trina over my career. So um, she's been the CEO of Homelessness New South Wales for the last five months. Um, so start start doing the math um, and how old she might be. Um, uh, she spent eight years at the City of Sydney, five years of that as, as the Safe City Manager and three years before that as the Manager of Homelessness. Um, before that, she was the senior regional manager of um, the Sydney Metro YMCA for a year. And before that, uh, she was the community hub manager for two years in East London in 2011. Um, and before that, she was the community development training manager at the Salvation Army in Perth. So she's kind of going getting around a, a little bit um, for a year. And before that, she was the marketing and communications manager at Galway City in Ireland. Uh, starting that job in 2007, and I also know because I, um, Trina has been a guest, um, a guest presenter at the police leadership workshops that I used to used to do. She was a, a regular presenter at them, and she she shared with that group that she was a a nightclub club manager, I think, in um, Dublin, in Ireland, at the age of 16. So you've had a you've had a big career in leadership roles. So so. Let's just explore a little bit, um, uh, and I've kind of gone into that a little. That's a, a brief outline. Do you want to tell me, tell the, our listeners today, Trina, who is who is Trina Jones? How 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 did this happen? And what's what's the high? Like I've gone through that. What's the highlights that you'd like to talk about to our listeners today? Thank it's, you, Alan. For for those that are doing the maths, I'm 35. So I had my first job at 12. I was um, I sought out a job, a Saturday job as a hairdresser in the city. I remember popping around and lying about my age, trying to get um, trying to get a Saturday job, just because for me at the time it was actually about getting some pocket money, getting some income. I grew up in the west of Ireland with my mum's single family household. We grew up in a social housing community, what was then a rent to buy scheme. For those that don't know, that means it was a social housing property, but 
it did enable that independence. My mum was able to buy the house for herself and that became an asset in our family. And we didn't have much growing up. So for me, I had a strong work ethic to get out. And because I wanted to buy things, I wanted to buy runners. I wanted to buy makeup. I wanted to have the things that I couldn't get. So I thought, I'll have a job. I'll get a job. Um, and that's what I, you know, I had a great work, work ethic. My mother's a very hard worker. And that kind of set me off on my way. And I always had a little bit of neck. <laughs> I'd have a, I'd have a chance and I'd have a go with things. Um, and that, you know, that led me to... Um, have the confidence to approach those things so yeah I started working very young and I did a bit of hairdressing and I did a bit of that but I always had a passion for music and I actually became a DJ at quite a young age and that's how I got into working in the nightclub industry um, I was working as a DJ for a long time and I remember from that getting work as a nightclub promoter and event manager and at my 21st one of the well-known publicans in Galway said you're the oldest 21-year-old in Galway because <laughs> I had been uh, telling little white lies about my age for a long time just to, um, yeah, keep my job and, um, yeah, uh, be able to enjoy that part of it. But I think being able to work at a young age and getting out and getting in amongst it did give me a lot of experience and gave me a lot of opportunities to learn about what it was to be in the working world and learn from others. And I had great mentors along the way. But I was always passionate about music and I was passionate about um, you know communications and that's what led me to go on to university where I got a scholarship I actually got what's called an access course in Ireland for young people who have come from disadvantaged families or low socioeconomic families it's a fabulous program and it gives people a chance who maybe wouldn't have got the points or the marks in their studies because of things that were going on at home for me I was living out of home at 16 I was working so school wasn't the priority for me at that time, but I was um, fortunate enough to be supported by my teacher, my business teacher at the time, and another teacher who helped me to apply for that access course. Went in, did the interview, lucky enough to get a placement. And from there, the rest is history, really. I thought I'd be on the radio and I'd do radio journalism, but increasingly all of my news articles, my documentaries, everything I did became about social justice. I found the medium of radio and TV and print journalism as a way for me to tell stories about what I thought wasn't fair. And that's what really inspired me into this work. And then I found out about community development and I thought, you can get paid for this. I thought, this can be a job. Yeah. I thought, so I absolutely ran at the opportunity and I haven't looked back. Well, well, um, one of the questions I always ask a list, ask a person being interviewed, and you kind of hinted at it already, I think, um, what was your first experience in leadership? And it's not necessarily something you've done, but what was your first example or first experience of leadership that has made an impression on, impression on you? Um, uh, so... You kind of hinted at your teacher there, maybe, or you mm. talked about a mentor. Um, I, if I, when I give this example, I, I give the example of um, Mark Murdoch, my old boss at the Collarbomb, how he came in and did the did, did the the news um, media stuff. I've never seen anything like it. So, if that gives you a hint um, of mm. what what some something for you. Um, Yes, thank you. I think I've had lots of mentors over the years. I'm trying to think about 
you know, what defined that for me. And in many ways, I've got a lot of my, you know, my lessons in my life. I've got a great peer group, a great friendship group that I've had since I was 12 years old and um, great group of women um, and some men that are a fantastic friendship group and many of them are leaders in their own right and I've drawn a lot from them. So I think I've got many mentors and many teachers, particularly um, when I started in community development, I had a fabulous teacher in Donald Walsh. He was one of my my first managers like that and left a lasting impression on me about how we can be inclusive and professional and set very high standards for the work that we do. And for me, that was a model that's always stayed with me. I also had one of the best bosses I ever had in London um, was Sally. She used to say, if I see a problem, I walk towards it. And I've adopted that same language as well. Um, you know, we ran community centres in East London. There was lots of problems, right? There was lots of challenges every day. We had young people involved in gang crime, you know, knife incidents, serious uh, crime incidences at times, challenges with fights and um, conflict and upset and you know Sally was a great one to roll up the sleeves and just walk towards it and I always thought that was a great way to work so in terms of leaders what always stood out to me is a person who can be outcomes focused start with the end in mind and be persistent and tenacious and also the ability to stay calm actually which is something that I'm always trying to work on I'm quite enthusiastic and high energy so <laughs> I'm always admire I always admire calm <laughs> So outcome focused, end in mind, uh, uh, stay calm. And there was one, there was a third one. And I think that's about just, you know, bringing people with you on the journey and the idea that people can be involved and finding opportunities to bring the strength out in others. That's why you're on the, on the show. Like this show is all about leaders who empower others um, to be leaders themselves and create inclusive and supportive work environments. So you just... It's just rolling off you because that's just who you are. Um, so you kind of, um, in the first five minutes, you're kind of reaffirming why I wanted to interview. <laughs> so, um, so thank you for sharing all of that. Um, I seem to remember when you spoke to the police leadership workshops that you said, as a 16-year-old, um, as a nightclub club manager, it didn't all go well. Do you remember that? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, there was definitely times, I mean, as a DJ working at 16 and, you know, there'd be oftentimes you'd make mistakes or you'd be, you know, feeling like someone's going to tip me on the shoulder here and, and tell me that you're not good enough. You know, there's definitely a feeling for that. And I have to say, as a new CEO, that's a feeling I carry to this day. I don't know if that's something I'll ever grow out of. Maybe you can give me a bit of advice about that. There's always an element of imposter syndrome but I think that's because I put myself in situations where I am trying to learn and grow. Um, and I do take that as a student and try and take those situations. I know when working as a young female DJ, people would say, oh, can you ask the DJ to play? And I would look around the, <laughs> the box and say, it's just me, I'm not an assistant. Um, and, yeah. you know, really having to, even though that wasn't that long ago, but really having to assert that, yeah, a woman can have this job and yes, a girl can have this job. Um, it's very different now. In my career, oftentimes, um, as a young leader, I know at 25, when I was at the YWCA, I had a huge team there. That was a great opportunity. Another leader that I highly admire, Roger Kennedy, person who leads with calm and good structure 
um, and find opportunities for others to be empowered. Um, gave me a great chance when I came to Sydney from London to lead a team at a time when the um, going home, staying home reforms were happening in, in New South Wales and trusted me with that important task. And we were successful in that at the time, but it was hard work. And I think, you know, working alongside him, I was really inspired by the way he held boundaries in place. He's a very person committed to his family and I always admired that as well. So yes, learning from others and um, trying to learn to back myself, which over the years, yeah, something I've always had to be aware of. You're coming out with so many um, attributes that that I think um, humble, true leaders um, emulate. Like you just said, back you have to back yourself, whether you like the decision or not. Um, and yeah, there's some something internal in you that does that. And you asked the question, um, the imposter syndrome. Um, so it's funny, um, like when I look at you, I, I think you're you're the perfect person for the role of the CEO of Homelessness New South Wales. Then I think of other people um, that I know, I won't, I won't embarrass uh, one of them, but she, uh, she also is in a, a position of high authority and, and thinks the same as you, like um, that she's an imposter and that someone's going to catch her out one day. But it, recently I interviewed um, Steve Van Sweeten on this program, one, one of my old, uh, long, longest friends, um, um, and he said... Um, he almost said no to opportunities like the CEO of Homelessness New South Wales, but he said yes in the end because he knew he had to have it, had to give it a go. And one mm. one of the things he talked about in his interview was, well, what am I lacking? What 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 do I think I'm lacking? And then pursued experts or people who are really good in that field to um, to to improve his skills in that particular field. But I, I probably just um, I, I would I'm not going to dwell too much on that. But I think for anyone, all the listeners listening to this, um, all good leaders doubt themselves mm. <laughs> um, and doubt doubt whether they should be there. And I think that's just a sign of um, why you should be there. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so, it's a, it's a, it certainly poses gives you opportunity to reflect, and that's something that you know I would be very open to doing all the time and. As an early manager, you know, at different times feeling like at the start of my career thinking that it was about, you know, being in charge and knowing everything and really learning the hard way, like most managers, probably that that's absolutely not the way to do it and trusting in myself a bit more and learning to let go. And I think becoming a mum really helps with that as well. It helps you to prioritise. I know that's not everyone's experience, but my experience of that was that, um, I heard the phrase and I really like it. It's about leadership should be um, held loosely and given freely instead of held tightly um, and, you know, in strong control. And I do try to give that leadership, um, hold it loosely and not take myself too seriously um, and give it freely to others. That's beautiful. I love, um, that's what I love about you. You're, um, you have all these... Uh, uh, I don't know what your ethics um, values that just roll off your roll off your tongue and are ingrained in you. Like well, held loosely, leadership is held loosely and given freely. That's beautiful, really beautiful. Um, let's look back at. Uh, so we talked about. We got to I think um, the regional manager at uh, the Sydney Metro YMCA. 
And yeah, then, the, y, the YWCA, yeah, that was a great role at the time, yeah. And then uh, the only three, say, two things uh, up up to the CEO, how, how does the manager of homelessness at the city of Sydney ha happen? How does the safe city manager happen? And what would be, say, a highlight of both those roles that you're particularly, uh, you're not proud of, you're not a braggart at all, but... Um, what you what what makes you content with um with both of those roles? Uh, we, the city of Sydney was a fabulous place to work. Um, it's kind of like being part of a family. It's an amazing culture, an amazing organisation. Really invest in their people and some fabulous leadership there. Um, from Monica Bruni, the CEO. So a lot of people to look up to there for sure. I think what I'm most proud about is the work that we did. The work that we did in the homelessness space. Um, the work to bring all of the services together for people that might not be aware of the space. So we encountered a situation in Sydney where all of the services had been refunded. There had been new relationships that needed to be formed at a time when increasing numbers of people were experiencing homelessness. And that started to look like more and more people sleeping rough on the streets of Sydney. And at that time, there was a lot of services involved, but they weren't necessarily communicating or talking and while everybody agreed that there was a problem, people were far from agreement on about how to solve that problem together. So from my background in community development, which is what I did my master's in, I thought about, well, how can we approach this in a collective way? How can we move away from the idea that it's one agency is in control of this or has the expertise? And how can we bring people around the table? And I met with you, Alan, then at the time when you were trying to do something similar. And I remember... Others as well, um, Superintendent Michael Fitzgerald and Wollamaloo was also interested in doing something similar. So there was a bit of a coalition of the willing across different elements of um, Sydney. And again, when you think about Sydney, we're talking about six different police area commands, you know, hundreds of homelessness services, allied services, different businesses impacted, um, people visiting the city impacted, as well as the most importantly, people experiencing homelessness impacted. And so we set about trying to see, you know, what is available to us? How can we bring everybody together around the table? One person, one plan to make a difference. And from that, a group of um, willing and passionate individuals was brought together and formed to make what is now known as the Homelessness Assertive Response Team. And that group was a group of people that went out onto the street every day, met weekly, the same place to meet with people to sort out what was going on for them and make sure those people could access housing with support. And I remember at the time, over 300 people in 12 to 18 months got housed without any additional funding being put in, which at the time was a huge breakthrough. We got wins like the housing officers came out of their offices onto the street. They understood the issue better. We got great advocacy outcomes around making sure that people got access to a housing first and then support, building on the work that had been done before us. And platform 70 and others that came before us and really the legacy of that work is in place today the together home program one of the biggest investments in housing first across the state has been rolled out because of the success of the programs like the, the heart um, as well as that group is in operation and similar models are being rolled out across the state so for me the relationships formed and the legacy of what that meant all achieved through influence like what you said we had no power as the city of sydney all achieved through creating a common goal and a shared vision for what was possible um 
by yeah hearing people and trying to reflect back to them how they saw their part of it and show them that we could be stronger together and really coming together on that was so motivating and so challenging and so worth it. What a beautiful, I, I, I just sit um, in awe of people like you. I, I just had uh, interviewed Daniel Strickland. I, don't, I think you know Daniel. Um, yeah. You and Daniel are so similar. You can just tell a story succinctly um, in no ums or ahs and just uh, get down to the crux of it. That And how you just described that was brilliant. And I think you're being very modest about some of your involvement. Um, I'll just tell listeners part of the story, like, um, you talked about um, bringing all the agencies together and and housing all those people, um, 300 people, I think you said, without funding over, over 12 to 18 months. Um, and you, you brought housing officers from family and community services um, uh, onto the streets, out of their offices. Um, but I think you left out a, a little bit of the story. I still remember a, a very a younger Trina Jones um, talking to the media, just the way you just spoke to the listeners just then, no arms or eyes, just very directly, telling it, um, telling the, the media how um, you had influenced an outcome that probably a government department should have done, but you'd done it. <laughs> and you were the one speaking about homelessness uh, to the media. Um, and then not long after that, um, the government department involved was front and centre and wanted to know how we how do, how do we get involved because of your influence and because of your gravitas, I think the word is, um, because of your bravery, you got out there. And I think you 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 you, you said of it at the start, um, when you see a problem, you walk towards it. <laughs> so um, from your friends. So uh, and I hope I'm not embarrassing you there, but that you've you've had this skill from a long time ago where. Even if it wasn't your, even if it wasn't your issue, you could get out there and and cause um, people, influence people to work together to to bring it to come towards a problem. So well done on that. Um, so somehow you go like you are, um, you're achieving some major goals in the, as the home the manager for homelessness for the city of Sydney. How did you leave that? You know. I think of myself as an entrepreneurial leader. I'm a great person to come in and um, find an opportunity, bring people together to deliver that opportunity. I, I shaped up the 10-year homelessness action plan. We had established the collective impact um, work for homelessness. And at that stage, I had been working in homelessness on and off on that at that level, kind of frontline, but also um, at a coordination level but still operational. So I was interested in more strategic work and increasing my portfolio. And I had been working in crime and safety in London, and that's an area I am very passionate about and placemaking and how do we make communities safer? I'm really passionate about that. I've always loved working with the police and community services that are working in that space. Um, I'm a big proponent for restorative justice and you know, stopping you know, crime prevention where it matters, putting you know, fences at the top of cliffs instead of running ambulances at the bottom, particularly yeah. with young people. Yeah. So the opportunity came up for the safe city manager. And I thought, you know what, this is an opportunity for me to increase my skills as a manager and a leader and enhance my portfolio at the city. So that was responsible for social housing, something I'm very passionate about, the, you know, making sure we're advocating for safe and um, more social housing. It was also responsible for domestic and family violence and the advocacy work that we did in that space, drug and alcohol responses. So everything from 
community sharps management to harm reduction strategies. And it also gave me a step into new work areas around, you know, reducing risk of planned acts of harm or reducing risk from, you know, ter- acts of terrorism in the city. So that was a, a new area for me and something I really enjoyed learning more about and getting stuck into. And it exposed me while I had started in that space, in the homelessness space around emergency response protocol and responding to emergencies. I got a lot more of that experience as a safe city manager and that culminated in me leading the COVID response for vulnerable communities um, across Sydney, which predominantly was about food security, but also became about support for people at risk of homelessness. So I was given great opportunity and great scope. Um, I was always told yes at the City of Sydney, which was great for me um, and was able to present my case and get support. And so I was able to try new things and it was okay if we failed. It was okay if it didn't work. We could work with others and make it better. So that's what brought me to that role. And my best legacy outcome from that was the team. They were such a fabulous team to work with and great people who I learned so much from. And the work that we did through COVID, we supported over 60,000 food hampers to be delivered to people, 600,000 meals. We established a free supermarket in partnership with Oz Harvest, and we supported people in crisis um, who just needed, they needed that at that time, families in food poverty, where COVID had pushed them just over the edge. So it was a privilege and very humbling and very sad to work in that for that time, but I was glad I was able to contribute. You just touched on something there, um, and uh, you kind of remind me a little bit of um, Aaron Longbottom, which was the first uh, guest on the show. Um, you talked about the best legacy is the team that you were, you had the privilege of working with, and you learned so much from the team. What? Tell me about that. How did? How did? Um, what did you do? What, what? What was so wonderful about that team and and what they achieved? I think it's about us coming together as a group of individuals. And, you know, I always talk even to my team now, you know, I'm, I'm building and shaping our culture as we go through a reset and a refresh as an organization with a change of leadership. And it's about going, what does the culture mean for us? The group is more than the sum of the parts. Like, what does it mean for us? How do we show up at work? And how do we hold each other accountable? And what's our value base? And what does that look like? So it's one thing to say, well, we've got a value of respect, but what does respect mean to us as a group and how can we support each other within that? And I think that's the side of the leadership that I've really enjoyed by leading from leading from the back, really, actually. And it's about creating the conditions for others to excel. And I'm one for a metaphor, but I do think about the idea of the garden. It's like you're the gardener as the leader, you're the gardener as the manager, whatever it might be. And your staff or the flowers, they all need different conditions to grow. And it's about working out with them what makes, you know, gets the best out of them. And I get a real buzz out of that, actually, seeing people just go on to succeed and them going, look what we did, look what I did. And I just, yeah, I find that incredible and seeing people do so well that you just become the facilitator. It's all about how can we create the conditions for these people to do their best and get the blockages out of the way so they can succeed. My God, where um, where did you learn that? How, how, is it just ingrained in you? Have you had a mentor or a coach or a leader that's helped you, or you, you just piece this together on the way? I 
I say I joke with my friends, Alan, that I'm one self-help book away from enlightenment. We joke about this all the time. I'm an avid reader. I'm a person who reads the Harvard Business Review for fun. Like I'm very interested in like learning about myself, learning about others. I'm, I'm a people person and I'm always trying to understand myself. And I think it's about keeping myself healthy. And, you know, it probably does go back to... Um, you know, maybe a little bit about my upbringing. I think that kind of does talk to people and it's about making sure that I was okay and looking after myself and having that support and independence. I have um, an auntie I'm very close to and she's always been a sense maker and uh, a great soundboard for me all my life growing up. And she's a wise person, a very wise person. And I think her, we would say she would play the devil's advocate. And I think that taught me about self-reflection and that taught me about well, what role did I play in this? You know, what part am I contributing to this? And looking at it from different people's point of view and seeking out empathy. So those skills, I think, were modeled to me as a young person um, from some people in my life. And then, yeah, just being an avid learner, like I'm reading the legacy book at the moment, The All Blacks, how do the All Blacks create culture to win and succeed? I, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, and yeah, so I read very widely and I'm I I meet everyone I meet I seek them out as a teacher. Beautiful. Um, and I think we might I think we've uh, we touched on it a little bit, but um, I don't think the listeners know at the moment um, you're the latest interview that this program's ever had to do uh, because you are so busy in your life um, and you had to put the kids to bed at eight o'clock tonight. And now you're sitting in your car doing this interview, <laughs> doing this interview and the courage to lead because you don't want to, don't want to wake the kids up. So, um, yes. so the courage, the courage to not wake the kids up. I don't have that. <laughs> yeah, awesome. that's exactly right. My my husband's um, done the bedtime story tonight, and um, like other parents, I'm trying to manage the juggle. And let me tell you, that's the biggest challenge I've had in my leadership career to date. And the challenge is because I'm trying to keep the boundaries to make sure I have dinner with my family every night and, you know, make sure I can drop my girls to kindy and not rush them out the door in a mad panic, although sometimes that is the way it is. But, um, yeah, trying to find the balance, trying to find a bit of time. And I have to say, I think the balance is a lie. I think it's a mix. I've been talking more recently about flow. Sometimes you're in the flow of work and as long as you can be present at work and when you're at work, and when you get home, be present at home. And that's success for me right now, because sometimes you're on at work, you're on, and sometimes you're on at home. And um, for at the risk of filling this podcast with, met, you know, methodologies or what, metaphors, I've got to share this one because this one is helping me on this personal challenge. Um, I read it recently about glass balls. Have you heard this one? So it's yeah. like you've got glass balls in your life and you've got rubber balls, right? So you've got to work out what the glass balls are and keep those in the air. So for me, the glass balls are, you know, my marriage, my kids, my friendships, my health um, and my career and my passion for my work and the people that I work with. And my passion for my work, you know, can break that down into making sure that we're doing the best with what we can and making sure that my relationships at work are solid. So they're my glass balls. And then the rubber balls, well, they've got to bounce the laundry and try, <laughs> trying to meet do everything for everyone um and yeah trying to hold yourself to impossible standards because you can't keep those in the air all the time but it's okay if they drop okay 
One thing, um, and I, I often hear um, uh, leaders such as yourself talk about all those like marriage, French, the kids, friendships, passion for my work, but you did mention health. So what what do you, like, I've seen um, uh, grabs of you on social media working with Daniel Strickland down at Bega in your role um, only last week. So how do you, what do you, what does Trina Jones do to look after her own health? Because you look, I think it's, it seems like you're putting in some good hours. Um, what do you do for you? Look, that's an ever elusive um, outcome, but I do, you know, I try to do a bit of yoga. I love yoga and I, where I can, I try and do some meditation um, and take some time for myself in that way. And yeah, I try to, even if that only looks like 15 minutes of yoga after the end of a busy day, at least I've shown up for myself in that way and allowed myself that little bit of time just to um, be present. And I do get a lot from that. And the more that I do, the better I feel. But also, I think it's about, yeah, just making sure you eat and you drink water. My husband will regularly text me, drink water. <laughs> <laughs> Look after yourself. And that's something that is so important because if you don't have that, you don't have anything. Good on you. Good on you. Um, and I think you've, we've mentioned him a few times now. Um, like your kids, uh, I think you said one's at kindy and one's at preschool. So how old are your kids? Yes, I've got um, Sophie is just over one and Eve is just four. And your husband, from memory, is an electrician or plumber? He's a plumber, a plumber. Oh, Good going. Yeah, yeah he's yeah. a plumber and um, he's from New Zealand. We met in London, actually. And um, yeah, I met him on a dance floor in East London and fell in love. And then yeah. moved, to, uh, moved to Australia six months later. So it's a bit of a whirlwind. Yeah. And how do you... Um, it's obvious that you, um, I've talked to you before about this, how do you share your working lives at, whilst keeping the balance at home? Look, we had to have a conversation before I was approached for this job and, you know, sat down and talked about well, what did that, what would that look like for us? I was on maternity leave at the time and, you know, my husband said, well, I'll go part time and, and you step walk towards this the opportunity. And one of the things at that time through the recruitment process was, and I reached out to the board and, and said, you know, as I'm going through this, like if I was to be considered, is it possible to have flexible working where I can work, you know, a four day week if I need to, to manage childcare? And they were so supportive of that. And that was not even a question. That was not even a consideration. It was like, absolutely, we're, we trust you to deliver the job. And so having that flexibility at work has been transformative. Being able to work in a hybrid capacity, work from home means I can have breakfast with my kids and dinner with my kids and I can still get into the office and spend time with my team. So the changing workforce and the support from my husband has been the reason that I'm able to take this leadership opportunity. Again, um, I, I don't, uh, I, I truly hope that um, it's one of, one of the Many reasons I wanted to, wanted to interview on this, the Courage to Lead interview series, was because I knew that I knew that um, I suppose respect, contract, uh, relationship, um, support for each other existed at home, so that you could um, so that you could do the role that you're doing in a in a um, in a flexible working environment, four day week, and I think you called it a hybrid capacity. One thing I want to highlight is. Um, is where did you get the courage in the interview 
to say, to ask for the working conditions that you want? I think you have to be honest about it. And I think I said to them, you know, this is what I would do if you get, if you get me, if you want me for the job, this is what you're going to get. You know, I'm a, I seek to have partnerships. I seek to have collaboration and the advocacy work that we'll do, we'll do it with others because we're stronger together. And, you know, this is what I can bring my skills and my experience and what I, my vision for where I think we can go. But, in order to achieve those things and to get the best out of me, I need to have this flexibility because otherwise I can't, I can't perform without that support from my family and without that connection. And they were so supportive and the chair and the others on the board, um, our leaders in the sector understand the challenges and it was no question. It was never a barrier. It's impressive. Um, and I think, I don't think, uh, I've actually asked you in the past to be a mentor for another young woman that I know. Um, but uh, one of my greatest hopes out of your interview today um, is other, not necessarily just women, but young people or any person of any age sees how you've kind of structured your career um, and your opportunities through having um, kind of set values this is who I am, um, and, and I think it's 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 so refreshing uh, to, to hear. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you, like you've, you've touched on a number of um, uh, your passion for social justice, for um, what was the word? People um, dealing with injustice, uh, making making sure people uh, in social housing has have an opportunity. I can't find the exact word. You you actually um, you wanted to target things what wasn't fair, what I thought wasn't fair. So right. I'm going to give you a big, big. This is probably going to be a, a difficult thing to grab. But out of all the social justice um, work that you've done up until now in the CEO. Mm -hmm. Is there one story that stands out um, where you've made a difference because of because you've stepped in, or the people you've worked with have stepped in that really sticks Look, out? Thank, thankfully, I can say that you know I've been grateful to be part of people's journeys in lots of ways, you know, in lots of ways, and um, I've seen success for lots of people because I've been privileged to be part of that for them, but. It wouldn't be because of me, like it would be because maybe it's about I could be a contributor to creating the conditions for that. But the person does it by themselves. Right. I'm not just saying that, like really, like they do it for themselves, by themselves. Like you are all you are is like a coach or a person who can be remove some of the systemic barriers or help pave the way. And that person does it for themselves. But it is a privilege to watch and see. Um. Lots of examples in Sydney, you know, lots of examples of people that we would have worked with that were long term sleeping rough on the streets of Sydney. Many who people would have said, oh, they don't want housing or they don't want to have a house and just being tenacious and working alongside some very passionate people like Mike Fish, like Ray Southwell, um, public space days and officers that were working on the streets seven days a week, engaging with people and never giving up. Um, you know, turning up to people and saying, we're here with you, we can support you, just sign that housing application, you've got an offer, let's do it, you can do it. Um, and then helping them move into a property and checking in and making sure they're okay, linking them with support services. 
I'm privileged to say I've actually seen that a lot of times. Um, if there's one, you know, story that stands out to me in my career, it's probably of a young person that I worked with in East London. He was um, involved in, and lots of people were working with him, but I was always very inspired by him. He was involved in a peace uh, movement um, following a significant series of knife crime incidences in East London were involved in the deaths of some young people and death of a friend's cousin. Um, and he established an organisation called the Young Stars. And they actually um, got over, I think it was 5,000 signatures or something at the time, anyway, a significant number from other young people to say that they will not be violent, that they will be peaceful. Um, and they had a knife amnesty. And, and this may not translate well to Australia, but knife crime is a very serious issue in London. It's, a, it's you know, it's causing deaths of young people, serious injury and fracturing communities. And for a young person to stand up against that and to show what's possible for me is something I was very proud of. They established a social enterprise. And yeah, I was very grateful to be part of that. And it's something that always sticks out in my mind. One of those young people was actually awarded um, an honor of compassion from the Dalai Lama just for the success of the work that they were able to achieve um, in East London at a time of significant challenge following the riots there um, in the summer of 2011. So yeah, I think that's something that always stands out in me about what's possible and also the power of collective impact. Wonderful. I think um, in, in that uh, uh, account of some of the, again, very humble about it's uh, we're stronger together and you're working with a group of amazing people to get the outcomes and you, you touched on a couple of um, homeless support officers in the city of Sydney um, homeless unit. One of them was Mike Fish, who I think, uh, I, I remember Mike, he was um, used to be a garbage man, um, garbage uh, driver, um, and now then became a, a homeless support officer. And the other person was a retired um, police officer, a very retired detective superintendent, from what I remember, of, of great notoriety, a man called Ray Southwell was, was your other was your other uh, homeless support officer. So um, you work with some very interesting <laughs> um, and, and colourful people who are very good at what they've done. One of the questions that I, one of the questions, um, and I want to, we're kind of getting towards the end of the interview, but I, when I see someone like you, and I think you've already touched on it, you, like in your introduction about yourself, but um, when I see someone like you, you could be anything as a leader. Like you, you must see peers um, at a very high level in government or in private companies that you know that you're as good as, if not better. What makes you? stay where you are i mean i'm very grateful you are you are where you are um and i i think the community is too but what drives trina jones to to do what you do and not I, seek those other opportunities sure i think or those, um all those other career paths i suppose not, maybe not an opportunity but career paths sure I appreciate that. Yeah, I think I made that decision a long time ago. I was at a crossroads just before I did my um, my master's in community development. I almost did a, a kind of a business inter, uh, international relations master's at Trinity. I was offered both of the opportunities and I chose community development 
because you follow your passion. You follow what gets you up out of bed in the morning. You follow what you're interested in and what makes you feel like you've done um, something decent for the day. And I think that's, you know, what really motivates me to work in this sector. And I think that it's, I'm not a person who could work for a bank. I'm just not like, that's fine. I've no judgment about that. But for me to be motivated to get up and do it every day um, and to find the energy for it. And I have a lot of energy for it and I have a huge commitment to it. It's because I'm passionate about it and I believe in it. I deeply believe that there are solutions to ending homelessness, that it can be rare, brief and non-recurring. And the solutions are on the table. And I know that it's just time um, and money that can solve it. So it's about creating the conditions for the investments, bringing the right people together. And I think we can get lasting legacy outcomes. And that for me is very fulfilling and really helps to drive yeah, my commitment to this area. I just want to assure the listeners that you and I haven't scripted this at all uh, on this interview, but you just prompted my next question. And, that, and this is where I really wanted to go because um, because you are like no other walking encyclopedia about everything homelessness. Um, if I had to ask you, and I want you to think about this because you've just touched on the end game, um, I'm going to ask you to think about these two questions. Five facts about homelessness and why is it important to everyone? Um, and what is your major goal in Homelessness New South Wales and how will you get there? They, they might be all linked together, but one of the things that I struggle with uh, is people like you and me um, have an interest in homelessness. Um, but a lot of people don't, or a lot of people don't understand it. So I ask, I revisit those questions then. Five facts about homelessness and why is it important to everyone? And what is your major goal in Homelessness New South Wales? Look, the first thing I would say is when we think about homelessness, I think people do think about people sleeping rough, and we have predominantly talked about that. But that's actually just the tip of the iceberg. So the first fact I would say is that 97% of people who are experiencing homelessness are hidden. You won't see them. It's a family fleeing domestic and family violence. It's an older person who's couch surfing because they've been evicted from an Airbnb, you know, have property turned into Airbnb. Um, it's a young person who's trying to stay with friends because they've had a family breakdown. And so while we do think about homelessness we often are drawn to what would be the tip of the iceberg people sleeping rough that actually just represents seven percent of homelessness in New South Wales so that's something I think people would be interested to know I think what's important to know is that homelessness for people can be rare brief and non-recurring and for services that are working with people that can be the outcome if they've got the right resources in place so last year, 70,000 people were supported with by specialist homelessness services. And those services were operating at over 30% capacity and still 48% of people were turned away. So when we talk about facts, it's about, you know, it's not just people sleeping rough. It could be your neighbour, your teacher, the person that you used to work with, because the main drivers are around poverty, family breakdown, domestic and family violence and um, well-being and health. And so... 
we know that the services are on the ground working with people doing the best they can, but they can't meet demand. And that investment is urgently needed for those support services. I would also say that the social housing is, you know, a major safety net in our community. It's an essential service and we just do not have enough. There's 50,000 people on the social housing waiting list. You'll hear the figure of 10 year wait times with the current rate of investment in social housing of just 2% per annum per residential dwellings per year. It's actually going to take 70 years, forget 10 years, it'll be 70 years to fill the backlog of those waiting for a house right now. And so with the atrophying and declining social housing stock and increasing and soaring rents and cost of living, it's very difficult for people to access the support they need. And the support services we talked about on my visit to the Southeast Coast last week, I was in Biga and Yorubadulla. I met with services there that are seeing over 300% more clients than their funded staff. And so, you know, the three things that we're asking for government, and this is part of the work that I'm you know, advocating for and hope will be my legacy, you know, as part of working at Home Assist New South Wales is for a 10% target of all residential dwellings in New South Wales to be social housing. And we've already got consensus with, um, you know, property sector, um, other housing and homelessness advocates. And we're trying to build consensus around that because we need to get that commitment and investment. It's not just a target, but the money to go with it. And now is the time. The Commonwealth Government are at the table and this is the opportunity to leverage that investment to make that happen. I'm also you know, hopeful that we can get support from the state government to top up the funding for specialist homelessness services to keep the doors open, to make sure they can provide that relief and those outcomes for the most vulnerable. And we need better coordination across government. We're calling for the appointment of a homelessness commissioner, somebody who can be appointed to the role um, to coordinate across all you know, industries, levels of government, different departments within government to make sure that ending homelessness is everyone's business. So if I achieve those things and we can get some traction, we'll be doing pretty good. Wonderful. All right. Um, so you actually answered all those questions in one hit, <laughs> as I knew you would. Um, all right. How will you get there? Do you think? Do you think you're yeah. close to uh, like I've um, you and I have talked about a homelessness commissioner for many years actually, and and we thought probably we were close when they the state government appointed a I think an elder abuse commissioner, mm -hmm. um, uh, elder abuse and disability commissioner I think it was. Um, is is it being talked about in the circles? that you're in uh, and are you hopeful that it will, or more than hopeful? Well, we are, will... we are more, we're very hopeful and it's something we'll continue to advocate for. Um, and I think, you know, how will we get there? We'll get there together. And I don't say that lightly. It will take, which is what it does take, it will take the efforts and the resources of everyone. And I used to talk about collective impact. I'm a big proponent for collective impact. More recently, I've been working with the Australian Centre for Social Innovation and we're looking at systems thinking and how can we create a shared vision for ending homelessness across New South Wales. It's some work that we have underway at the moment, starting with people with lived experience and frontline workers, right through to innovators and change makers and policy makers and leaders. Um, and getting that agreed plan on a page or agreed shared priorities. And we've increasingly started talking about independent aligned action. So the work that you and I did in Sydney was collective impact. It was all of us, you know, using a backbone organisation, working around the same issue with the same measures. But you can't do that at the state level. 
from where I'm sitting right now. Maybe the government can do that, but where I'm sitting right now, we've got to get aligned independent action. We've got to agree what our priorities are and each of us have got to push hard where we can. We've got to agitate, advocate, make sense of things, collaborate, um, you know, navigate together in all of those roles that are important and different people will have different strengths in those roles. And that's what creates influence. That's where you drop um, a stone and you see the ripples for miles around. And that's the work that I'm trying to do at that systems change level. It's not about us getting involved in the detail. It's about going, where can we agree and how can we work together? Okay. Um, independent aligned action. I, I, I like that. If, if um, I'll ask you this question. Like there's so many um, leaders in your field that you uh, that are you know equally as gifted as you, um, like Rebecca Pinkstone, um, the the CEOs of Wentworth Link Link Wentworth St George Housing, and a lot and some of the other ones uh, as well, like uh, Mission Australia. Um, how how do you ever talk about how do you get it get the issue of homelessness so that it, everyone's talking about it? That's what we're, we're we're working on it. We're certainly working on it, and you know we've been very grateful for the support that we've had from the media, particularly um, over the last couple of weeks. You know the issues on the agenda. We're welcoming that support and trying to amplify that. And you know the people that are willing to tell this story is helping us. We saw the four corners. Yes. Um. You know, expose if you like on the issue. I think that's helped shape shape the conversation and the narrative. Um, but really, all of these things are useful, but we have to have action. You know, there's never been harder to get a rental property. We've got families living in tents. I was in the South Coast last week and was a mum and six kids in a tent. There was a pregnant woman working three days a week with two small kids under six living in the tent, you know, mm. and it's not acceptable. We've got to ask ourselves, is this the society that we want to have? Is this the community that we want to have? Because it doesn't have to be like this. And that's, um, I think, as you say, those stories get to people's hearts. Like one of the, you and I have talked about this in the past, um, in, a, in a country such as Australia that has achieved so many big ticket things in, in AIDS, um, in smoking, in, say, random breath testing, um, why can't we? It's not acceptable that people, that a mum and six kids is living in a tent because they've got can't afford anywhere to live. So That's thank, right. thank you for 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 raising that. Um, um, we're just about at the end of it. I, I, you, you, you're a walking, talking encyclopedia about. Um, I think about making homelessness and why it's important. So simple to understand. Um, let's let's finish with this question to you. Um, like you're you're a relatively young leader um, who who is a young mum and doing a wonderful job of balancing and being present at a workplace and at home wherever she is. Um, what would your advice be to other young leaders or even any leaders that that want to visit and learn from your from how you approach leadership? Um, what would your advice be to them and how do they make it happen? Look, I would say, that's a big call. Look, I would say, have a go. Have a go. Don't be afraid to come up with a new idea. And, you know, it's okay to 
shape it and change it with others. I think that's that back to that point again about being loose about ideas. You know, people get set in their ways and it's like, no, we do it this way and that's the way we've got to do it. And I would say, um, here's a way we can start and how can we shape that and change it together? I'm really committed to that. And I would say, yeah, walk towards it and have a go because if you don't try, you'll never know. And I think, you know, the solutions are out there. The innovation is actually about how we deliver solutions. You know, we know what we need to do. It's how we get there. So that's where the innovation and tenacity and persistence comes in. And so, yeah, don't get knocked down and dust yourself off and have another go. Have you, uh, I if you want to go there, you, you don't have to answer this, but you just touched on it. Um, if you get knocked down, um, dust yourself off and have another go. Can you give an example of um, when Trina Jones has got knocked down and had to have another go? Yeah, like I feel like lots of examples really, but, um, you know, I have my, I've kind of got a, it's hard to explain, I've got a very deeply ingrained optimism and positivity. I find it hard to, reflect on things in a negative way because I've kind of got a brain that sees everything as a learning opportunity or sees everything as um I don't look at anything in a bad light if that makes sense I always think well at least I learned something from that right but I think um my lessons have been around the barriers maybe that I've had in my life and not being held back by them and finding a loophole finding a workaround and having the support of my friends to be able to do that has certainly been um, something that I've been very grateful for. But I would say that, um, yeah, I wouldn't allow a challenge to define me. It's certainly only ever a fleeting moment. Very good. Well, I, um, I really have no more questions for you, Trina. It's been such a pleasure um, to talk to you in the Courage to Lead interview series. Um, and I really... Uh, hope the our listeners um have enjoyed it just as much as i have um just for the information of all the listeners our program now is um linked um to apple podcasts and now spotify as well so if um if the listeners um uh, uh access their podcasts through those mediums please um if you if you like the like the interview with trina jones today um please write, give it a rating and, and a review because uh, through um, the more the ratings and the reviews are, are there, the more people are going to hear what Trina Jones just talked about today, which I think um, should be open uh, for, for everyone to listen to, especially like I think if so many um, and, and so many young women would be inspired by you, um, what you've talked about today, um, but so many, so many leaders, men and women, um, could learn so much from you today. So thank you, Trina. Um, is there anything you want to say in before we close the interview tonight? No, just thanks very much. Thanks for the opportunity. And, um, yeah, it's a privilege to be considered. And thanks for the opportunity. Well done, Trina. All the best. And um, uh, I'll let you get out of your car and go home. <laughs> thank <laughs> you. <very> much. <laughs> See you. See take you care. Bye-bye. Bye.